It's go time. The XFL is into week five. The CFL is in its combine. We have a lot to talk about with quarterbacks and salaries. Stay tuned. It's all coming your way on Quick Kicks. Hi, everybody. Don Charbon, along with Heath Graham and Pat Mooney. We've seen the XFL now run its course for five weeks. Clearly, the St. Louis market seems to be the best of the bunch. It has the highest attendance, seems to draw the most eyeballs when it comes to television. But overall, is the XFL meeting its mark? The short answer is no. It's not surprising that St. Louis is the big star of the league at the moment. They are not far removed from losing their NFL franchise. And that in a sports hotbed is always a big loss. So it's understandable that people want to support football and come out to support any league that is going to come their way. We saw it with the Baltimore CFLers slash Stallions back in the U.S. expansion era. The same thing by far the most successful of the CFL expansion teams to the U.S., and that was because they were still very pained in their team leaving their city as well. Absolutely. I think they, they, they'd like to get an NFL team back, and if they show they can support a team, there may be the outside possibility. So I think that may play into it as well. The hard part for St. Louis is most likely if they're going to get another team. I don't see the NFL expanding because of the way the scheduling would be. So I think they would probably lean towards transferring a franchise. And right now, the way the economics are through television revenue, highly unlikely anyone's going to pull up stakes. Everybody seems to be getting their stadiums. That's the thing. A stadium might be the only reason a team might move is, is they're not getting the right deal from the city. There was a lot of speculation with the XFL that because Dwayne Johnson had associated his name with it and he gave it a big send-off uh, calling it the 54 when he was opening the uh, programming, I guess, back in week one. But there has been this decline of television ratings to the point where all four games combined in week five was floating around a million viewers. Now, you would look at that in Canada and say, well, that's not so bad if you're getting 250,000 views a game. But in the United States, with 10 times the population, that just doesn't cut it. It doesn't. And you look at some of the TV numbers in Canada here, Labor Day Classic games traditionally get almost, well, well over half a million viewers in general on one given game. So if you're looking at a million people over the course of four games in that huge media market that is the U.S., that's an abysmal number. We do have to remember that we're going up against March Madness at this point, which which makes sense that this week would be down over some of the others. March Madness and basketball is king in the U.S., and people are tuned into those games. But at the same point, that decline, has, it, it's not a one-off week. It's consistently declined each and every week. And compared to the 2020 season, it's even low to start. So uh, people don't seem to be coming back to the XFL like they were at least early in 2020 prior to COVID. In 2020, the league drew about three times as many viewers and attendance was far better. Even though COVID was in the offing, that XFL rendition seemed to have some momentum. This one, 
it just almost felt like it was never going to start, and then it just started. The promo for it wasn't there. It, even during the end of the NFL season, we saw a lot of hits for the USFL on television. Hardly saw any of the XFL. And that is a bellwether in my mind that maybe the energy just isn't there. It's a big question, though. Any business like this, when you take it on, at what point will the three main characters that are behind this, will they sit there and just let money flow without getting some sort of reward that they face? It's not over in season one. It could impact how they do business in season two. I think any league that's going to start will have that downtime at some point in the, in the inception. And certainly we're, we're seeing that now. The question is, is there enough of a bright side or an upside for long-term investors to stay invested and also to get some momentum going to get the fans in? Because this is going to be a fan-operated league, much like the CFL. And to date, the fans have not come to see the games. Especially in Vegas, where their their average attendance is, I think there are more people on the field than there are in the stands at times. It's about what kind of signals they need to see this season to continue moving forward. I can't imagine the complexity of trying to start a professional sports league at all at this point. You have to be able to have the money to give it some time to grow if you see signs of it. One of the biggest issues facing the XFL is the continued competition of other startup spring football leagues as well. It would be one thing if there is one entity of spring football, they've got the money and the momentum behind it. But in the past five years, we've gone through the AAF, the USFL, two versions now of the XFL, the fan-driven spring football league. I can't remember the, the acronym for that one exactly, but you've got five or six different entities all vying for that same piece of the pie. And it's hard enough with one when you start separating and segmenting, it's impossible. XFL had to know when they set up their schedule so quickly after the end of the NFL season, they would have some freedom in the first few weeks, but as soon as March Madness came, that they were going to take a hit. You had to be prepared for that. The problem is March Madness isn't a one weekend thing. It's going to continue now for another two or three. That means you're going to get punished again and again and again. Now they do get to get games on ABC, which is an over-the-air, well, what's left of over-the-air, network. That could really determine their fate for this season. I'm not saying that this is going to be an end-all if things don't turn around right away. It will have to be a topic that they have to consider. How do you go forward from this? You want some momentum. You want some sustainability. And right now, neither seems to be evident. I think the American football consumer over time has shown consistently that, that spring football, as we've seen it in the various iterations, as you mentioned, Heath, has not been popular. They like their high school football during the football season. Then we move on to college and the NFL. And outside of that, the USFL had some success in its first iteration later, but, but not enough to keep it going. So I wonder how many times are entrepreneurs going to say spring football has an opportunity to succeed here and we don't see it succeed. The USFL might have made it in its first iteration back in the 80s 
had it not moved to the fall. Because then it took on the NFL head-to-head, and they were going to lose that battle every time that they took it on. That was their biggest miscalculation. Had they stayed in the spring, they were into, I believe, their fourth season. They had momentum, especially the championship game seemed to draw well. And if they could continue with that, just work their way through the rough times and some of the franchises but keep the strong ones going well. And this is sort of what I was getting at with the XFL. You've got a St. Louis market that's very strong. I believe a San Antonio is reasonably strong. You have markets that work. I guess in a, in a macro sense, you have to think about if we want to be viable, maybe we have to cut a couple of teams out of the mix that are draining us and keep the ones that are stronger. I think that would certainly be a formula for success. However, I think what happens is often these owners who are succeeding may get a little greedy and they want to go up against the NFL thinking that the NFL might absorb those teams. You're looking to get a bigger piece of the pie. Now, I, I may be right off base in that comment. If that's part of it, all owners aren't necessarily on the same page. We're going to cut our losses with the teams that aren't succeeding and those that are succeeding. We want to continue to have those teams play somewhere and their only option really is the NFL. Again, spread out over the massive markets and population of the U.S. Is a six or eight team league something that's going to generate enough interest nationwide? We have the tradition and the history in the CFL. And once again, we see struggling startup leagues in the U.S. And it just further solidifies the tradition and the solid foundation of the CFL. It's something for us to be proud of as much as we watch these other ones struggle. But I would imagine you'd want ideally at least 12 franchises in the U.S. on solid ground to really make a go of it. The Spring League was the forerunner of the USFL. It only had four teams. Now, the USFL has maintained that model that they had, or the Spring League had, by keeping everybody sort of in one center. Cut costs. It's more of a limited approach, but it got them through season one. Now they're moving into season two. We may see, and this is just wild speculation, but at some point, who knows? We may see discussions in 2025, say, between the XFL and the USFL. If you've got strong franchises here, strong here, let's mesh them together. And I think that the USFL's way of operating is one that's going to potentially allow them to incur more long-term success. When everyone's in the same area, you're starting to try to develop some connection with fans without having teams travel and and taking those costs off, as you allude to, Don. And I think that that might get enough momentum if it can stay long enough to potentially continue on. But I think it's also a case of not putting all of our money out there or asking our owners to to incur all of the costs without seeing potential for success. We're going to limit costs. We're going to try to build a brand and see if we can succeed in that way. Uh, I don't know if it will work. Again, is spring football viable in the United States? I'm not sure it is, but I guess it remains to be seen. I think it has a place. It's just you have to, over time, if you do it right and you market right and you develop right, you could be viable. I'm still of the belief that had the USFL not moved to fall, they would have still been around. The problem is the USFL doesn't have to fly as much, don't have to rent as many stadiums. The XFL's got all those problems. And 
those costs exponentiate very quickly from week to week to week. Now their salaries are relatively the same. So that, uh, that given cost is out there. It's not the end of the world for the XFL right now, but they are hitting a wall and coming off the heels of March Madness, of course, there are other events in the States, such as the Masters Golf Tournament, which is going to swallow up a lot of viewership. It Again, they're going to be hit by all of these other interests. How do they sustain? I understand and appreciate, but having a, a team that has a New York-based name but plays all of their games in Texas is not something that's going to really drive up that loyalty from the fans that the in the city or, or area that the team's named after. I couldn't imagine if the Saskatchewan Rough Riders played all of their games in a hub city in Vancouver. I mean, Ryder fans would still flock because Ryder fans sure love the team and I, I respect that 100%, but it just, the, the sense of community and the ability to go see your favorite team in your home city is, is what really drives that interest is from my perspective. It is a different way to do things. But if you if the if the USFL is thinking about we want to be a, a a league that can filter players to the NFL, get them to the training camp at least, then do you have to have all of these cities and stadium rentals? Perhaps having all eight in one center makes more sense because what is it really about? Breaking even and getting these players an opportunity. If if that's where your your directive is coming. I just don't think that you would need to name them all for geographic regions if that's the the sense you're going to go to. You're going to build it more like a like a NASCAR where they're all situated in Charlotte, but they all drive for different companies or ownership groups or whatever the case is or this is where we operate from. You can have nicknames for the teams, but don't try to sell me on the fact that this team's from New York or this team's from Washington or this team's from St. Louis if they're not really from there. And I think your point is well taken, Heath. That does nothing to, to bring a brand to the city. I think the CFL, with its long-standing history, has people who are invested in the league, in the players, and in the history as well. Uh, and therefore, if coming out of COVID, for example, the CFL had decided to do a hub, I think you would maintain that interest for a short period of time. If that continued on for some time, I think you'd have that next generation lose interest in following that that game. Well, as Heath famously said on this podcast, bubbles scare me. Let's get back north of the border. We have a lot to talk about. First and foremost is the uh, CFL Combine that's happening in Edmonton. Now, it's just getting underway. We can't speak to it too much. I would highly recommend following Marshall Ferguson on YouTube with the CFL uh, channel or following especially Three Down Nation and their YouTube channel or their webpage. They are doing a fantastic job covering all of this. We just don't hold a candle to them in terms of how much we can do. So rather than just pretend <laughs> that we're experts, let's just leave it to the experts and let them provide the information. We'll have a synopsis next week once it's over We'll have a chance to review everything ourselves, but right now, as it just begins, this this is a a huge event for Edmonton. Lots of interest, and there are a lot of quality athletes there. 
to me, just prior to moving on, I, I agree. It's a great thing for the league. It's great for Edmonton. But but the disappointing side is that we as fans aren't able to really follow it this year. With all social media and the ability to put something on the internet, this year we're not able to see it. And I think that also hurts the CFL and, and the U Sports players that, that we've come to know in our area. We'd love to be able to watch some of the, we live in Saskatchewan, the U of S and U of R players that we know and maybe have gone to see games. There's a lot of buzz about it. The question is, I guess, if you're the CFL, do you want to live stream it? Now, I imagine as we get to the weekend and lots of stuff happens, maybe that's when we'll start to see this. But right now, day one, no, there is no live streaming of anything. I I would love to see it. I enjoyed it last year when we had that opportunity. It's great to watch. It's fascinating because you get to see the talent level that's out there, which is just beyond belief. It boils down to how hard it is to follow U sport athletes in this country in general. It's getting better with some streaming options to be able to to check in from time to time. But short of going to games in university stadiums, it's it's really hard to learn players' names, what they're about in those histories. And the Combine is a great way to showcase that as well. And the NFL and the NFL Network do a fantastic job of their combine coverage every year, probably a bit over the top with the the hours of coverage that they do spend on it, but it's all there for you to see. And even not necessarily a live stream, but a, a YouTube channel half hour recap at the end of each day of the combine would go a long way to really highlighting and showcasing some of these athletes. Again, follow Three Down Nation right there. They're doing it for you. If you want to watch U Sports, you can, I believe, catch a U Sports Pass where you can pay for a subscription and you can get televised events. Minimally, I believe, in Canada West, the OUA, in Quebec, and Atlanta, Canada, they, they have their own supplemental services as well. So you do have these opportunities. You just have to front some coin to pick them up. And you'd get basketball, volleyball, you name it, it would all be out there. The problem in Canada is we, we always face this. We are 35 million in a country as big as the United States or China, and the resources to do this are costly. The distances are huge. Uh, it's interesting, too. I heard that with the Vanier Cup, for instance, TVA owns the rights to the Vanier Cup. Their owner is now owning the Montreal Alouettes. Will that help? It certainly can't hurt it at this point. Let's hope for the sake of youth sports and the athletes who participate that they get an opportunity to be showcased a bit more than they have been to this point. Now, speaking of being showcased, let's look at quarterbacking in the Canadian Football League. And we've got three that took different paths in this period of free agency. And I'd like to sort of touch on them. First and foremost is Dane Evans, who went to the BC Lions via trade. We only find out later that he took a huge pay cut to do so. I don't find that surprising at all with the quarterback situation in the CFL. He was hard-pressed to find a spot where he was going to be the number one guy and get that starter money. BC is a fantastic opportunity for Dane Evans to rejuvenate and reignite his career and prove that he is a talent in this league worthy of that starter money. Vernon Adams Jr. can be a hit or miss quarterback. When he is on, he is a highlight reel and super fun to watch. When he is off, that team struggles. So to have somebody of Dean Evans' caliber backing him up 
he's going to get the opportunities to showcase his talent and build on that for future contracts. Evans, with all of the money that's available to him in terms of bonuses, and some of these bonuses kick in if he takes a snap during a regular season, if he gets an award at the end of the season, he stands to make at most $151,000. He was making north of four hundred dollars with the Tiger Cats. We kind of knew going into this that if a team was going to trade for him, they would have to negotiate a new contract because they could not have two starting salaries on their roster. BC took the plunge. They got the deal with Evans. I don't know if I would have the courage to do what he did, but this is a real gamble on yourself right now. You are literally becoming the backup, taking less money and saying, I've got enough in me that I can overcome. And if the Lions want me, I'm here. And if not, I can put out enough in the way of numbers and performance that somebody else will come knocking. I think it's a good risk for him to do. We've seen a lot of CFL quarterbacks in recent times who are seen to be the next big starter. Dane Evans would be one example. We can look at uh, Nick Arbuckle as he left Calgary, was going to be one of the next big starters. And to this point, they've struggled when they've been given the range to the team. We've seen it before with Jake Mayer, and we're also potentially going to see it with Chad Kelly in Toronto. And when they struggle, it, it looks pretty catastrophic like it did with Dane Evans. He admitted this year was a horrible year for him. To step back into that backup role may give him the chance to rebuild his confidence and potentially move back into that starter role at some point in the CFL. We have seen that happen in the past with quarterbacks like Anthony Cavill. His confidence was shattered when he was in Hamilton. Whether that's coaching, individual performance, he took a step back in Montreal, watched other veteran quarterbacks succeed, and then, as he learned from that experience, was able to step back into his starting role with great success. And Don, you mentioned you don't know if you would have the the courage to do what Dane Evans did, but if he wants to continue in professional football, he didn't really have a lot of other options. He, he needed to take that step back or basically disappear from professional football. He has shown that he wants to still compete and he's taking the steps necessary to do it. He could have said, I'm not going anywhere. The Tiger Cats at some point would have had to have cut him contract still would have been out there and he could have waited it out a little bit to see if a team was struggling and then they would have come for him and would have paid that salary it's he took what he thought was the the prudent path by taking the salary hit getting the opportunity now to be on a roster and develop in British Columbia separate from what he had done in Hamilton I think taking that step is is a good one for him because if he waited and he's sitting on a contract of $450,000, any athlete who had the year he had would look at his performance and say, I'm not worth $450,000 if they're honest with themselves. He's taking the step back. I think it's a chance to potentially rebuild his confidence, to rebuild his career, and potentially to, to focus on that skill set that he seemed to be lacking last year. Go to Ottawa. Jeremiah Mazzoli had that horrific injury at Mosaic Stadium, he finished his season early, is back with the Red Blacks. He's going to be their starter. He gave the Red Blacks $75,000 in salary cap relief by restructuring his salary. Trevor Harris to Saskatchewan, a team that struggled mightily through the back half of the last season, needed room in its salary cap to bring in some talent. I, I look at this 
from the perspective of Jeremiah Mazzoli and Dane Evans believe they have an opportunity to win a championship with the team that they are with. They're looking at leaving some money on the table if that means the team can sign more tools and more weapons to help them reach their ultimate goal. The Saskatchewan Rough Riders are in a bit of a transition period right now. We've talked ad nauseum about the coach and the general manager being on expiring contracts this year. It appears to me like Trevor Harris is taking this opportunity to get his and is not necessarily looking at this as a championship caliber team. Now, anything can happen on the field. I'm not writing the Rough Riders off completely before the season even starts. But given all of the challenges they have facing them, this is an opportunity for him to get that big contract late in his career. He's making a half a million dollars in hard money. Half of that comes in terms of a bonus. And he's going to make 525 the next season. In my mind was that if Mazzoli goes to Ottawa and says, look, I understand you guys want to win. Can we restructure to make it more palatable within the cap? I don't have to take as much of a hit, but if we redo this, then it makes it better for you and I can still live with this. Dane Evans says, I want to restart my career. I want you guys to succeed. How about I just take a huge hit? I'm going to gamble on myself that I can prove that I still am a winner and I'm going to ride with you. Harris goes to Saskatchewan. Was that a consideration? Was he sitting there saying they need money to bring in other athletes? Now, Jake Weineke came in, but I don't know what kind of salary he got. We just learned that Keon Schaefer-Baker has had hip surgery. He's not even going to be there. That was of the receiving core. That was their best receiver left over. I think the one thing we have to keep in in mind here is that Jeremiah Mazzoli, by taking that payout in in the forms of a bonus, he's actually able to make more money than he would if he had taken it in terms of his his actual contract because the tax system in the United States works very differently. So he's actually making $33,000 more by taking a pay cut. So is he truly there to help the team? Yes. So what? He gave he gave the team 75 to work with. But he's not giving away anything there. He's making more money still. Trevor Harris is taking the amount of money that he's getting from the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. That is for him. And I think he's probably going into it looking at last year where he took a bit of a gamble on himself and only made a base of 130 uh, throughout the course of the year. He might be saying, this is my opportunity to make up the pay. I'm in the prime of my career and I need this opportunity. But he's walked into a situation where the organization, as you allude to, Heath, is in a must-win situation. And he can demand that of the organization, which I think is part of the reason we've seen the riders let go of some of their receivers that were being extremely well paid. We, we talked at length about the number of sacks they gave up last year. How much are they going to improve that offensive line? Harris is not a mobile quarterback. How is he going to survive back there? This this is the question that I have. It's just different philosophies. I'm not saying anyone's right or wrong. It, it's a case of who feels they have the best opportunity to win, how they go about doing that, and who is looking for money. Like I said, we know Trevor Harris is an aging quarterback. Pat mentioned prime of his career. I would tend to disagree with that a little bit. I, I think he's more in the in in the twilight of his career and is looking to bank as much as he can on his way out. The Rough Riders were in tough as well. They were in a situation essentially where they had to overpay or try to bring Cody Fajardo back in a bit of a disgruntled quarterback situation as well. They were limited on options of starting quarterbacks. They have a proven starter in Trevor Harris albeit an aging one and one that came at quite a cost. 
if it's if it's a question of saving yourself, I would have personally, I would have gone cheaper. I would have said to Harris, "Yeah, you can play here, but it's going to cost you this because I've got to find some money to pay somebody else." The issue, I think, with Harris was the Montreal situation was not stable at the time when he chose to leave. I think if Montreal's situation was stable as it is now, they could potentially have offered him more money, and I think they could have enticed him to stay in Montreal where he had success. I know what Harris said at the beginning. He said, I'm kind of the marquee player. I've I've got to decide where I'm going because that's going to draw other people. That's a fair comment. I mean, had he been patient with the Alouette situation, he's been around long enough to know that the Alouettes weren't going anywhere. If he's patient, though... It might take away that bargaining chip that he got with the Rough Riders because the Riders may not have been patient enough to wait for him and may have taken a flyer on a Dane Evans or another quarterback of that ilk to try to have at least some veteran presence in their camp. Remember, though, that the Rough Riders had that negotiation window and they probably threw out that dollar value and the Alouettes looked at it and said, nope, not happening here. Now, they got a starting quarterback at a much lower rate maybe my question is in the long run, who do you think is going to have more latitude to improve? If you're going to, if you're asking me who is going to finish with a better record, the Alouettes or the Rough Riders and more success and potential playoff positions, I would give the advantage to the Montreal Alouettes at this point. Jeremiah Mazzoli re-signing in Ottawa, restructuring in Ottawa is huge. This is year two of their blow everything up and rebuild. So this is the year that we will see whether that was a successful experiment and successful additions of players or if they need to look at rebuilding once again. I'm I'm not going to disagree with you, Heath. I do think that Montreal has the organizational structure behind it that some of the key offensive players and defensive players chose to go to different teams. But I think if their organization was strong and has people that are ready to step up, they should be fine. I think Saskatchewan still remains a question mark as to whether or not Coach Jeffries can be the offensive coordinator they need. Their offensive line will hold for Harris. There's a lot of question marks with Saskatchewan that I don't think are there with Montreal at this point in time. The CFL has inducted its Hall of Fame members for this upcoming class, headed by defensive end John Bowman and linebacker Solomon Elamamian. Both were amazing players during their time in the CFL. Elamimium, of course, is still working with the CFLPA. John Bowman is coaching. Josh Bork, uh, offensive lineman Josh Bork, Lloyd Fairbanks, Larry Crawford, who had a great career with the Lions. And you have uh, Jacques Dussault and the eighth commissioner of the CFL, Larry Smith who have also been inducted as builders. It's pretty good. And then, of course, uh, the big guy, Chris Schultz, on the media side, got posthumously inducted, and I thought that was pretty classy. All of these individuals are the class of the CFL. They, I mean, as a young man growing up, watching Larry Crawford play was phenomenal. Uh, the names of the offensive linemen are synonymous with the team, so uh, everybody knows who Solomon Elamimium is. And we also know as well uh, that John Bowman was one of the premier defensive linemen to play in the league. So I think it's a great class going in. Congratulations to the CFL on also recognizing Chris Schultz and the work that he did as well. I think that's a great move by the league. Offensive linemen are one position that is really tough to judge 
for the caliber of player and whether they're worthy of Hall of Fame induction. But the CFL absolutely got it right with this one. Josh Bork is a, a solid player for a number of seasons in the CFL and, and well-deserved. Nine seasons with the Montreal Alouettes, finishing his career with the Toronto Argonauts, 151 career games, two Grey Cup wins, some all-star honours in there. So a very, very deserving offensive lineman. And those two defensive stars that you mentioned in Bowman and Alamimian are some of the best ever to play in the CFL in their respective positions and a really, really classy move to get Chris Schultz in now, not only from his past experience as a player, but recognizing the value that he brought as a commentator and a media personality as well. Aluminium had the rare distinction of being the league's MOP and MOR as a defensive player, most outstanding player and most outstanding rookie. He also was a six-time West Division All-Star, four-time CFL All-Star. He when he he joined forces with Adam Big Hill in that BC linebacking core, and they became Team 100. They were dominant. I don't know if you saw a better pair of linebackers, both in their prime, moving forward when they first started together. Any running backs had to fear that combination, and, and certainly having Elamimim go into the Hall of Fame is one step, but but we know that Adam Big Hill is also going to be there in time. When he finally decides to hang him up, still performing at a pretty high level at this point, probably a, a couple more seasons for sure out of him. The Canadian Football Hall of Fame will have a, a great new uh, set of people to create uh, those busts for and celebrate. Does Schultze get a second bust now coming in as a media personality or do they just roll out his, his player one? I guess that remains to be seen. That's a good question. I don't know how they do that. I guess we could always check out the uh, the Canadian Football Hall of Fame site and, and ask. That'd be worth it to find out. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Third Down Gamble. Join us again, the Third Down Gamble podcast. Audio worth watching. Third Down Gamble uses the expert resources provided by Canadian Football League Player and Game Statistics for analytics, game notes, and statistics, and 3downnation.com for news, insight, and in-depth analysis. Please visit cfl.ca and 3downnation.com for the most up-to-date information on the Canadian Football League.